0: To get more out of this podcast, head over to Nebula, the creator-owned streaming service where you can get more episodes ad-free and earlier than everybody else, plus bonus content and exclusive series by myself and more than 130 other top-tier educational creators, many of whom I've interviewed on this podcast. You can sign up for Nebula by clicking on the link in the description or go to nebula.tv slash conversationswithjoe. You can sign up for Nebula by clicking on the link in the description or go to nebula.tv slash conversations with Joe. It not only helps support the podcast, it furthers our mission of building a platform that focuses on content that matters. As we get older, we spend a lot of time looking at our parents, you know, seeing how they turned out, what problems they ran into in their lives, their health. We spend a lot of time looking at their health. And we do it because we care about them, obviously, but it's also a little selfish. Let's face it, we share genes with these people, you know? We want to have an idea of what to look out for, what kind of problems that we might expect in the future, what to worry about. And few people have more to worry about than those who have parents with Huntington's disease. Huntington's disease is like getting Alzheimer's and Parkinson's at the same time. It affects both your motor control and your cognitive abilities that decline over time. It's like this perfect storm of neurodegenerative conditions. It's, it's pervasive, it's deadly, and there's no cure. And it's genetic, so if one of your parents has Huntington's, you've got a 50% chance of getting it yourself. So yeah, if you're in your mid-20s and you're watching your mom and your dad just fall apart because of this disease and you know that it's literally just a flip of the coin whether or not that same thing's going to happen to you, that's horrifying. Of course, thanks to technology, you can get your genes sequenced and find out for sure, but for a lot of people in that position, they decide not to get tested. You know, since there's nothing you can really do about it, it's just better not to know. That calculus changes, though, when you decide to have a kid. I mean, maybe you don't want to flip a coin with your own life, but you certainly don't want to flip a coin with somebody else's life. And if it's an unplanned pregnancy and you get it tested and you find out that the fetus has Huntington's disease, then now you're faced with this ethical quandary of, is it better to terminate the pregnancy or doom this person to a nightmare scenario later on in their lives? A nightmare scenario that, oh, by the way, you're going to be facing yourself. Ah, this is dark, guys. It's a terrible position to be in, and genetic editing technology is working to change that. Obviously that's a good thing. But there are some people that think that genetic editing could lead to something even worse. Is there a dark side to genetic editing? Consider the noble wolf. Intelligent, cunning, loyal, the alpha predator of the American West. Its very image a symbol of strength and fearlessness. Many tens of thousands of years ago, a pack of wolves started following around a tribe of humans because they could pick off of the scraps and the leftovers from the hunt that the humans were doing. And it was a great situation for them, you know? They didn't have to hunt themselves, it was easy food. And then somewhere along the way, one of those wolves decided, hey, what if I just made friends with these people? What's the worst that could happen? This. This is what could happen. (laughs) The domestication of wolves and their selective breeding into the countless numbers of dog breeds that we have today is just one example of genetic engineering that we've been doing for thousands of years now. You know, we didn't know what we were doing back then. We just knew that if we had an animal that had traits that we liked, we would breed that with another animal that had traits that we liked and just kind of kept going that direction. And it wasn't just animals. Pretty much every food crop that we have today is a wild bastardization of what they actually were thousands of years ago. Like, this is what corn looked like before we got a hold of it. This was just kind of something we did, just accidentally, over thousands of years. It wasn't like a science behind it or anything. Until Gregor Johann Mendel entered the chat in 1822. Not to be confused with Sir Gregor... Different guy. Sir Gregor Mendel was an Austrian monk who forever changed the game. He grew up working on his family farm, but due to his scholastic aptitude, he got sent away to pursue an education. Fun fact, while studying mathematics at the University of Austria, he was actually taught by Christian Doppler, the guy who discovered the Doppler effect. And how weird is that, that the thing that he found just happened to have the same name as... Oh. At school, he excelled at math and physics, and after that, he joined the Augustine Monks at the St. Thomas Monastery in Brno, where he had access to its extensive library and experimental facilities. Monasteries were kind of the repository of information at the time, they were the, the libraries of their day. And while there, he took a special interest in plants and the inheritance of physical traits. And between 1856 and 1863, he conducted studies on tens of thousands of plants. And in his studies, he discovered dominant and recessive traits, which he referred to as particle inheritance because they didn't really, you know, know what genes were back then. And the reason this is such a big deal is because before this, people thought that the offspring was basically just a mix of your parents' genes, you know, with some genes a little bit more dominant than others. You know, if, if, if your mom is a lemonade and your dad is an iced tea, then your kids are going to be Arnold Palmers. But Mendel showed that it doesn't really work that way. You know, you, you might get a straight-up iced tea, you might get a straight-up lemonade, and, and then another couple of Arnold Palmer's mixed in with him, you know, Man, I'm thirsty. Sadly, Mendel didn't really promote his work, and most of it was lost for the next century before he was finally, you know, credited for all the work that he did. But, you know, today, that's the first thing that kids learn when they study genetics in school. So, Sir Gregor. Good show, old chap. Flash forward to today, and we have CRISPR, which I've talked about on this channel before. CRISPR gives us the ability to edit genes in ways that Mendel couldn't have ever even imagined. CRISPR, by the way, was a total surprise. We didn't see this coming. We thought that it would be decades before we could edit this precision. But here we just find this naturally occurring enzyme that bacteria use to repair their DNA after viral attacks. And it's basically Control F, Control R, you know? Find and replace. And the headlines around CRISPR kind of heralded it as the moment that mankind took the wheel from mother nature. We're not quite there yet, you know? We're we're still adjusting our mirrors and putting our hands on 10 and 2. But it proliferated quickly. Like, it became so ubiquitous that you can- you can now do CRISPR experiments with home CRISPR kits. And there's a good reason for all this hope. It's already helped treat some diseases like sickle cell anemia and beta thalassemia by altering bone marrow and stem cells. The only downside in those instances is that the original marrow needs to be destroyed by chemotherapy, so it does carry some risks. And there's a long list of conditions already under trial, so if these work out, obviously, that's a huge deal. In fact, CRISPR technology is already evolving into newer, more precise things like Cas3 and Cas12. But despite its obvious benefit for a whole host of painful and debilitating conditions, uh, the concern around genetic editing still seems to kind of dominate the conversation, with with a lot of people worried that, you know, altered DNA is going to filter into the population at large and cause genetic chaos in the future. So yeah, this is where we need to talk about somatic versus germline DNA editing. All the clinical trials, at least the legal ones that we know of, are what's known as somatic editing, which only affects the person being treated. It doesn't affect their offspring. And before we start quoting Dr. Malcolm from Jurassic Park, just know that the only way that genes can be passed from uh, parent to offspring is if you alter the germline, which is basically altering the egg, sperm, or the embryo. So yeah, somatic editing is the introduction of a genetic variant at the gamete that carries a mutation throughout the entire now-altered organism. Germline editing is introduced at or before the embryo level, and if it's successful, it would be in every cell of the individual and it could be passed on to their offspring. And if there were concerns, germline patients can have their offspring screened to make sure that there's nothing out of the ordinary going on. Now, it's worth noting that random germline variations happen naturally all the time, so if you have a problem with germline editing, then, by all means, take it up with Mother Nature. And by the way, just to address how insanely fast this technology is progressing, we need to take a step back and look at the thing that made this all possible in the first place, which was the Human Genome Project. The year was 1990. Germany reunited, Sinead O'Connor had a number one song, and The Simpsons made their first appearance on TV. And scientists decided it was time To finally understand the human genome ever since watson and craig discovered the structure of dna in 1953 our understanding of it had you know grown by leaps and bounds but we were still hamstrung because we didn't we didn't have a roadmap. you know we knew certain locations on certain chromosomes were connected to certain diseases but there wasn't really anything we could do about it because those regions it was still way too vague those regions still were like tens of millions of base pairs long our drug development and our testing was limited because what we really needed to do was to step back and take a look at the big picture but the problem there is that the big picture is over 3 billion base pairs. So in 1990, the Human Genome Project was born. It would take 13 years and 2.7 billion dollars to do it, almost a dollar per base pair. But when it was done, they didn't license it, they didn't sell it, they just released it publicly for all the world to have. <laughs> communists. But by doing so, they gave research labs and private companies that that roadmap that we needed. And our understanding has skyrocketed, and the price of this has plummeted. If you want to get your genome sequenced today, that same thing that would cost $2.7 billion dollars in the 90s, now it's like $1,000. Now of course with this genie out of the bottle came a whole host of ethical concerns. You know, how do we make sure this is only used in a beneficial way? Get it? Genie? Genie out of the bottle? Genes. Well, part of the Human Genome Project was a program called ELSI, which stood for Ethical, Legal, and Social Implications. They were created to establish a protocol for how we should engage with the human genome once it was sequenced, and they focused on four areas. Privacy and fairness in the use of genetic information, including the potential for genetic discrimination in employment and insurance. The integration of new genetic technologies, such as genetic testing, into the practice of clinical medicine. Ethical issues surrounding the design and conduct of genetic research with people, including the process of informed consent and the education of healthcare professionals, policymakers, students, and the public about genetics and the complex issues that result from genomic research. This work led to a piece of legislation called GINA, which passed in 2008, and its goal was to prevent people from being discriminated against based on their genetic information. And some of this did get rolled over into the ACA uh, to prevent people from getting discriminated against for pre-existing conditions. Like, let's say I'm an employer, and I get access to your genetic information, and I see that you might have a, a predilection towards depression or heart condition or even ADD, I might be less likely to hire you because of that, even if you don't actually display any of those symptoms. That's a violation of privacy, and that's why Gina was passed, to protect people against discrimination based off of employers or health insurance. And that's great that that passed, but hey, hey, Who needs a law when people will just willingly hand over their genetic information and broadcast it publicly from home genetic sequencing services? Now, to be clear, 23andMe states clearly in their privacy policy that they don't sell individual information, but they do sell aggregate data about the population as a whole, if you opt into it. Also, if you have a rare condition that might make your genome helpful to specific research projects, they might, you know, seek out further consent from you. This is part of their business model. That's why it doesn't cost $1,000 to get your genetic testing done through them. They make up the back end by selling the data. And some people are uncomfortable with this, but you do have the right to opt out if you want to. But many people freely share this information on ancestry boards, and that's fair game. It's it's broadcast, it's out there, and you don't have to have done it yourself for this to affect you. Just a couple of years ago, this exact thing resulted in the identification of the Golden State Killer, Joseph James D'Angelo. Thirty-four years after his last crime, but yeah, investigators were able to make genetic matches between the DNA that was found at the scene of the crime with like a cousin or an aunt who had publicly put their genetic information out there on on uh, on the internet, and they cooperated with the authorities, and they were able to narrow it down to a specific list of subjects, and yeah, boom. So yeah, I mean, I guess the lesson to be learned here is, you know, don't rape and murder a whole bunch of people and piss off Patton oswald's wife. But no, there was an awesome HBO documentary series called I Will Be Gone in the Dark that was that was based off of the book of the same name that was written by Michelle McNamara, who was an absolute badass, and Patton Oswalt is a national treasure. Just go watch it if you haven't seen it. But anyway, yeah, it, it's a tricky situation. You know, on one hand, gathering this data, even for a price, you know, gives us a, a better sense of the overall health of our society, and in this case, brought justice to dozens of, you know, victims. But and used the wrong way, it could be a catalyst for discrimination. Now, in fairness, I only say that because, you know, we've been doing that for a long, long time. It is better for all the world if, instead of waiting to execute degenerate offspring for crime or to let them starve for imbecility, society can prevent those who are manifestly unfit from continuing their kind. Three generations of imbeciles is enough. You can be forgiven for thinking that was pulled from Mein Kampf or something like that, but that was actually written by Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, writing the majority opinion on Buck v. Bell, which basically okayed forced sterilization. So yeah, this was sort of the prevailing wisdom at the time, and it was informed by eugenics. Eugenics is defined as the study of how to arrange reproduction within a human population to increase the occurrence of heritable characteristics regarded as desirable. This was developed in the 1880s and it's mostly credited to Francis Galton and, like most terrible things, it started out as a good idea. Or at least it had good intentions, anyway. The goal was to improve the human race by propagating good genes and getting rid of bad ones. I mean, if we could do that with sheep and corn, why not do it with ourselves? It was an incredibly popular idea for a while. I mean, who doesn't want to improve the human race? Of course, the Nazis got a hold of it and ran with it and just basically used it as an excuse to exterminate anyone they found undesirable. And this is ultimately what led eugenics to fall out of favor, but it didn't come up out of nowhere. The Nazis didn't invent eugenics. It was actually around for a while, and it was deeply ingrained in American thought. Yeah, I did a video previously about John Harvey Kellogg and some of the, you know, wacky health ideas that he had, but he was big into eugenics. In fact, he was pushing for a national pedigree registry that would basically dictate who could mate with who based on their genetic traits. In 1912, the International Conference of Eugenics was held in London, where 58 papers were presented. Of those 58 papers, 42 were written in the United States. Now, before people start calling me an America-hater in the comments, let's, let's get a little bit more specific, shall we? This, this is gonna hurt a little. Notable figures like Alexander Graham Bell, who promoted eugenics as a way to prevent deafness. Teddy Roosevelt, who wanted to sterilize criminals as well. Helen Keller, of all people, argued for eugenics. Margaret Sanger used the popularity of eugenics to advocate for birth control. Winston Churchill pushed for forced labor camps along with sterilization for mental defectives. Civil rights pioneer W.E.B. Dubois advocated splitting blacks into four categories to breed out the lowest group. George Bernard Shaw wrote about it. Even Jacques Cousteau. Though, to be fair, he was more worried about overpopulation in general. Yeah, this was mainstream thought for several decades. You know, Darwin's theory of evolution was still pretty new, and the idea of survival of the fittest was, you know, big in people's consciousness. And Francis Galton, who was credited for kind of coming up with eugenics, he was Charles Darwin's cousin. So yeah, the idea of making sure that the fittest survive and that the least fit don't survive, or the least don't, you know, spread their genes onto the next generation, it wasn't that much of a stretch at the time. And this is what the proponents of eugenics were worried about. But yeah, you know, people gonna people. We're a tribal species. And this was coming off of hundreds of years of European colonialism, where, you know, they kind of locked into it this idea that some races were superior to others, and total coincidence, they came to the scientific conclusion that the superior race is the one that just happened to look like them. Now, of course, there's a lot of things from that period of time that we now find abhorrent, and it's really easy to just, you know, think of it as some relic from the past. But unfortunately, these things that we think are so far in the past, aren't as past as we would like for them to be. Yeah, that Virginia law that was at the heart of the Buck v. Bell Supreme Court case that allowed forced sterilizations, yeah, that wasn't overturned until the 70s. Also in the 1970s, under the Family Planning Services and Population Research Act of 1970, an estimated 25% of Native American women were sterilized. The Bee Gees were on the radio when this was happening. But still, that was 50 years ago. That could never happen in this in this day and age. So with a history and present like this, these new, cheap, efficient genetic editing tools have got a lot of people concerned that they could be used in a similar way. But what made eugenics evil wasn't the genetics part, it was the involuntary part, the forced sterilization of races and classes and just straight-up genocide. All of that went on way before we knew anything about genetics. Genetics just became the new excuse to do this to other people, and, you know, just wrapped up in the guise of science. You know, preventing somebody from living with a debilitating disease is not the same as wiping out an entire race of people based on skull shape. The point is to maximize reproductive options and put the power in people's hands. There's actually an argument that some people could make that, that by removing this ability, by preventing people from having this option, it's still forcing humanity in a certain, you know, genetic direction. So, doing it is eugenics and not doing it is eugenics. Yeah, it, it gets confusing. So look, the fear is understandable, but we can't let that fear get in the way of treatments that could actually help people. You know, it's kind of like the talk that we hear about, you know, Neuralink and brain implants. You know, on one side, you have people who are talking about uh, being able to download information from the internet or, or, you know, telepathic communication and the privacy issues that come up around that. But way before something like that happens, we're going to be giving paralyzed and disabled people the ability to walk again if they choose to. We're going to be giving voice to the nonverbal. There's nothing bad about this. Same situation here. I mean, yes, of course in the future people are going to be talking about using genetic editing to, to, you know, make themselves look better, give themselves physical attributes like removing myostatin so that you have big, huge muscles. I mean, of, of course this could be abused. But that same technology that could, you know, give a baby blonde hair could also be used to prevent dozens of congenital defects that cause incalculable human suffering. And in fact, why not let people alter their genes for cosmetic reasons? People get cosmetic surgery all the time. We don't consider that unethical. You know, we we tolerate a little bit of superficiality because that same technology can go towards burn victims and injuries. And I mean, it's a little weird when you think about it. You know, nobody bats an eye at correcting a cleft palate or a cleft lip with surgery, but if you fix the gene that would prevent that in the first place, then that's unethical and it's two steps away from Gattaca. I mean, long-term, imagine a future where there are no degenerative diseases anymore. Imagine longer lifespans, no cancer risk at all, and no drug side effects anymore. You know, we might could even alter our bodies to better handle the extreme environment of space so we can shuffle off this planet. In fact, we may find that that's the only way that we can do so. I guess I'm coming down on the side of let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater, which is actually an apt description because we are still in the baby stage of this. This is very, very early going on. There's still a long way to go. In fact, going back to the beginning of this video, Huntington's disease, there have been some experiments recently where they've been able to reverse Huntington's disease in a lab with human cells. But yeah, considering the advancements we've seen in the last 15 years since the Human Genome Project wrapped up, I mean, it actually gives me a lot of optimism for the future. (sighs) Alright, so let's get serious for a second. We need to talk about your underwear. No amount of genetic editing is going to fix that. You need to step up your underwear game, bro. Look, in times like this, you gotta find enjoyment wherever you can, so you might as well start downstairs. So I've talked about Mack Weldon before. Mack Weldon makes the single most comfortable underwear you are ever going to wear. And I feel comfortable saying this because they actually designed their own fabric to be the most comfortable thing in the world. They created a few different types of fabric, actually. You've got your dry knit, your air knit, your warm knit. They even have one called the Silver Series. It's actually treated with silver, so it's antimicrobial, which means they remain odor-free forever. I bought some Mac Weldon boxer briefs a couple years ago and it immediately became my favorite thing. You know, when I when I randomly pulled it out of the drawer in the morning, I know it's gonna be a good day. And they didn't stop with underwear, they use these fabrics in shirts, shorts, pants, hoodies, jackets, hats, scarves, gloves, slippers, basically any part of your body that you wanna be comfortable, you can find it on their website. I got this uh, soft workout shirt from them. My wife is super jealous of it, but look how how stretchy this thing is. It's super stretchy and soft, and and it needs to be stretchy, because you know I get swole. The buying process is super easy online. They deliver fast, and they even offer a no-questions-asked refund if you don't like the first item you buy from them. And if you do like their products, and you will, and you'll wanna buy more in the future, they've got a loyalty program called MacWeldon Weldon Blue that makes it even easier and can save you money. When you sign up for MAC Weldon Blue, you get free shipping for life, that's level one, but if you spend $200, you get to level two, which gives you 20% off every order for the next year. So if you wanna give them a try and see for yourself, just go to macweldoncom slash Joe Scott and enter Joe Scott as the promo code when you check out and you'll get 20% off your first order. And it turns out you don't like it. Again, you can return that first order and they'll refund it. Fully, no problem. So you got nothing to lose. Anyway, links down in the description, but one more time it's slash Joe Scott. Go check it out. Keep those tender bits tender. Big thanks to Mac Weldon for supporting this video and a huge shout out to the Answer Files on Patreon that are supporting this channel, forming an awesome community. I love you guys. I got a few names I need to shout out and murder real quick. We've got Sammy DB, Alex Rose, Lee, Jason Kirby, Hans Chong, uh, Kenneth Simon, Jay Merzen, Sean Kelly, Stephen Dowler, DK, Nicholas Marks, uh, Ethan Chickering, Zolt Milhalfi, <laughs> cool. Uh, Philip O'Neill, Kay Hewn, and Matthew Feinberg. Thank you guys so much. If you'd like to join them, get early access to videos, exclusive Patreon stuff, and uh, do some live streams that only Patreons and members get to do, you can go to patreon.com slash joe. Please do like and share this video if you liked it. And if this is your first time here, uh, maybe check this one out. Google thinks you'll like that one. Any of the others down there that might have my face on them. And if you like them, I invite you to subscribe. I come back with videos every Monday. All right, cool, that's it for now. You guys go out there, have an eye-opening rest of the week. Stay safe, and I'll see you next Monday. Love you guys. Take care.